Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Maury Moreland Morrison here to tell you Geico has more than just great savings. Much more. Geico has been around for more than 75 years, back when they were using Morse code. Sorry, that's just my sense of humor. What's more, with Geico, you get 24-7 access to licensed agents on the app, online, or over the phone, so you can talk to them at night or in the morning. So forevermore, just know that no other auto insurer has more more than Geico. More power to you. Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more.
All right, welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is October 8th, 2017. Man, we got a great show for everybody tonight. Rich Ward from Fozzie, Danny Phil from Cradle of Filth, and I guess a semi-interview with Bob Kulik uh, from whatever he does. Uh, Bob was a little snippy uh, during the interview in the beginning, uh, so I, it was a pre-recorded interview. I, I kind of cut it out. Maybe he was having a bad day. I don't know. Who, who knows? We'll talk about that later on, I guess. But a great one tonight for everybody. And right there, going back to the old days of Malice, when James Neal was fronting the band from the In the Beginning record, Gods of Thunder. James was the original singer for the band, played with them, I guess, kind of until they broke up or called it a day. Uh, but when they did reunite a little over 10 years ago, it really was just Jay Reynolds, the guitar player. Uh, James Rivera from Hellstar was fronting the band. And they re-recorded some old songs. They put out a record, and then Jay kind of went bye-bye for a little while, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, New Breed of Gods came out in 2012. Uh, and I have to be honest, I'm not a big fan of re-recording a lot of stuff. Uh, but that album actually sounded pretty good, I have to be honest with you. And James sounded great on vocals, but I don't know what's going on with the group since that time. Uh, or if the, you know, the website says they're active, but not much has come out of them. So who the hell knows? But we're going to play a lot of great music tonight. I got a couple of new tunes again on for everybody. Maybe we'll jump into one of those in a little bit before we get into the interviews. Uh, but like I was saying before, Bob Kulik, Bob was doing a press day last week. Uh, I set up for an interview with him. He called in, kept getting disconnected. Uh, I was finally able to get him and uh, get the interview going. And he got a little snippy with me about the time and everything, but I don't know what I could do. I mean, I wasn't the one calling him. He was calling me and getting disconnected. I guess it bothered him. Then he sounded like he really couldn't be even the least bit interested in doing the interview to begin with. Uh, and I had watched him that morning on one of the morning talk shows. And he was so bubbly, full of life. So I didn't kind of get that Bob Kulik. So I went for about 10 minutes being polite and asking questions. And then I kind of ended it because it sounded like he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be there. And I really didn't like the way he came off to me when we uh, got going. I kind of cut it out during the interview because uh, I don't want people hearing the way he was. But, you know, I watched for 10 minutes. I'll play what we got out of it and make what you want of it. But wasn't one of my best interviews, and I, I probably won't ever interview him again to have him on the show. Let him do his morning talk shows and uh, see if that brings in a lot of fans. You know, all those morning talk show people are running to buy rock and heavy metal records. So if that's what he wants to do. That's fine by me. All right, let me see what I have here. Brand new for everybody. Uh, new Oz. Oz is coming out with a brand new record. I'm excited. It's been quite a while since they've had anything out. I do believe they're going to be doing interviews uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so when they do, we'll find out who's doing it, Ape or whoever, and uh, we'll get them on the show and we'll do that interview. Uh, but right now, let's get something on off the new record. I haven't even had a chance to go through the whole album myself yet, so maybe we'll just randomly pick a song. The album is called Transition State. It's coming out real soon. Here is Restless. <laughs> Yeah. 
right, that was Steel, but before that, Prayer with Over the Top. Like I said, Steel with Chains Are Broken. That was a Steel out of Germany. Axel Rudy Pell's old band before he kind of went solo. Uh, that was from the debut record in 1984. Great record. I mean, he's definitely a shredder. We had Axel on the show maybe a year or two ago, and he thinks very highly of himself. A really nice guy, and he does it in a good way, in a fun way. But a really cool guy to talk to, and hopefully he'll have some new music out in 2018. We'll get him back on the show. Steel has to be one of the only bands that has two members named Volker in there at the same time. I guess maybe in Germany, Volker is like Michael here in America. You know, it's a common name, and everybody's named it, but it seems weird to me. All right, we're going to get an interview with Rich Ward from Fazion in about five minutes. Let's play something off their brand-new record, and we'll go right into the interview. Here's Weight of My World.
Rich, it's Mike. How are you? Mike, how are you, sir? And please accept my apology for yesterday. I'm really sorry. I uh, don't worry about it. That shit happens all the time. <laughs> it's no big deal. Well, it, I, I try not to be on the list of those folks that have done it. Uh, yesterday was a, a big press day, and I just started incrementally getting behind five and then ten minutes. And by the time I called you guys, it, it, the answering machine or the recording said that I had missed the show, and I was so bummed. I'm so sorry. Nah, not a problem. Hey, listen, I, I know if you, sometimes if you're not the first interview of the day, you know it's going to stretch on and on as they go along. You, you don't want to cut people off. I get that. Believe me, you were only one step behind me put on the list of Scottian, so you, you saved yourself today. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, I, no problems. Don't worry about it. I, I'm glad to talk to you today and, and, and goofing on, on Scottian. I know exactly what you're saying. You never want to like upset or disappoint the fan because – you know, for some people, it could be devastating. So I got what you were saying back then, and I, I know what you mean right now. Yeah, it's in Scott Ian's case, it, was no, it wasn't that it was once. It was three times. So I, I, I always cut somebody a break. Because like, yeah. there's probably been times where someone's tried to talk to me, and like for whatever reason, like if I was in the middle of something, and people just have expectations of what these encounters are supposed to look like, and – so I, I, I always give people the benefit of the doubt, and there's only two people I've ever met that uh, I was like, wow, this is consistently a, uh, an odd exchange. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like as a musician and as somebody in the spotlight that it's sort of like an obligation where you need to be polite to them? Or, or, you know, because, like, you know, they, they look at you guys in a certain way, and when they meet you and they feel like, you know, that's not who I thought he was, it, it kind of devastates those people, and it turns them off. So is it just good business to be polite to everybody or, or try to give them a little bit of your time? Because it's not an easy thing to do either. Well, I've had the opposite experience before where um, I've met some folks in the business who were above and beyond crazy nice to me. I mean, when I was a kid, I met Michael Sweet outside of a Striper concert. I waited by the bus like uh, all good fans do. And when I spoke with him, I just kind of flippantly said, where are you guys tomorrow night? And he said, oh, we're in Charlotte. And I said, are there tickets still available? He goes, I don't know. Hold on. And leaned over to his tour manager and said, hey, would you put this guy on our, on our list for tomorrow? And I, I wasn't asking to be put on the list, but when I showed up, there were backstage passes. Wow. I went backstage. He invited me to eat dinner with the band. Like, he doesn't even know me. He met me outside the bus. I could have been some type of psychopath, and yet he invited me. And I sat at the table with the band, ate dinner, uh, I, I, and, and then, of course, he, he – crazily offered, hey, what are you doing tomorrow night? You want to come to tomorrow night's show? I was like, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> same tr- same treatment. Um, and then he, and then he, the next night said, hey, well, you've already got three gigs in a row. Let's make it four. And I, I just said, man, I, I got I to gotta go back to work. Uh, and I said, I'm, <laughs> I ran out of money. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a teenager. It's like, I, I, got, I, I don't have any more money. He reached in his pocket and, and Gave me a twenty dollar bill. I was like, I can't take money from you. He's like, Hey, one day I'll need twenty bucks, and you can pay me back then. And it was just, I, I'll always remember the nice guys, the, the yeah. ones he didn't owe me anything, and he wasn't doing it because he was worried that I may not buy the limited edition uh, picture disc vinyl. He just did it because he was being nice and because he has a generous heart. Um, 
And so I tried to follow those examples. I don't think that Scott Ian owes me anything, and I don't believe that any musician owes any fan anything. Um, my point when I, when I gave that interview was someone asked me, did anyone ever disappoint you? And I said, yeah, he, he disappointed me. Only because I'm such a huge Scott Ian fan, I was disappointed that, um, you know, I had these expectations at the moment that, uh, wow, I'm so excited to meet this guy, and he wasn't excited to meet me, and nor should he. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> who, who the hell's Rich Ward, and why should Scott Ian give a crap on who I am? So yeah. it all comes down to kind of our own expectations. Um, you know, people have said they've had weird exchanges with Ingve Malmsteen. I haven't. I've met him several times. He's always been a complete gentleman and a sweetheart to me. I've had people say, don't ever meet Neil Sean because – he can be grumpy. Like, everybody has these, you know, uh, stories of the one guy who was a jerk or the one guy who was nice. And I just think, hey, as a general rule, it's kind of a, a cool thing to do just to be nice, whether you're a plumber or whether you're a politician or whether you are a policeman or whether you're in a band. Just being polite is probably the first step. But if a cop is ever a jerk to you um, – I don't ever take it personal because he probably just pulled over a real asshole before he pulled me over. Um, and, you know, and he's just, people are human. We're flawed, right? We're just, uh, we're never going to live up to the expectations that, uh, of, of what a great human is supposed to be like. And I, I doubt I'll have, never have another exchange like my, I did with Michael Sweet, but, um, you know, it just goes to show you that, uh, when you do have kind of the, the experiences on the extreme, you remember what both experiences feel like. And if there's ever an opportunity where I can uh, take an extra couple of minutes with uh, someone who uh, honestly has supported my career to the point where I can pay my, um, you know, uh, put the roof over my head and put gas in my car, I realize that the relationship between a band and a, and a fan uh, is a sacred one, and I, I try to honor them. And I'm I'm going to fall short sometimes, but at least I'm conscious of it. Oh, absolutely, I agree. You couldn't have said it any better. There's no way Michael Sweet didn't buy himself a ticket to heaven. I'm telling you, <laughs> all the stuff that guy's done, he's got a spot up there guaranteed. Absolutely, dude. He's got a mansion ready with a freaking fancy car in the driveway, <laughs> a big a big ass pool. There's no doubt. Yeah. He's ready to go. Hey, well, listen, you, you definitely never have disappointed any of your fans, especially music-wise, going back from Stuck Mojo to Fozzy, and now Judas. I mean, each album has gotten progressively better, and that's kind of hard to say when each album is great on its own. But this one, man, it, to me, it just takes the band to another level. Well, thank you for saying so. It, it's really strange because um, for, uh, for some of my favorite bands, I, I think a lot of my favorite records for them are kind of like their second or third record. And sometimes maybe even the first and, and rarely do you see a band like, you know, seven albums into their career, finally hitting their stride. It's like, <laughs> what is going on? It's well, like, you did, you know, and thanks, man. I, I, I really believe that. And I, I think part of it is our, our willingness to, uh, uh, admit where we may have done great things and we may have done things that were a miss and a mistake and always taking account of, you know, where you are and knowing that uh, I will never be as good a guitar player as uh, Eddie Van Halen and I will never be as good a songwriter as Paul McCartney, 
But the goal is to be the best that I can be at Rich Ward and to find the right balance in chemistry with my bandmates and how do we work best as a unit because uh, being in a band is not like singles tennis or golf. I mean, this is a team sport, and you you will succeed only if the team is working well together, which is why some of the great bands in history, as they've had lineup changes, and you, you, you kind of wonder maybe why this record doesn't resonate as well as maybe another, and sometimes it comes down to chemistry, and it doesn't mean that the, the guys in the band aren't amazing musicians and aren't capable, but it really does. How do you play together and how do you work in the studio and how do you create and is there harmony and respect uh, amongst the, the group? And we've really got that. And, and, and it hasn't really been until the last three albums where we've had the same lineup uh, for all three line for all three albums, but we've really started to, to get that chemistry and learn how to work with each other because, uh, you know, musicians are notoriously sensitive when it comes to, hey, man, great idea, but I'm I'm not really feeling it. And then somebody says, oh, God, you hurt my feelings because I really like yeah. my song and or I like those lyrics. And at some point, you just have to realize you can't take it personal. Um, we, you and I could go see three different movies and have three different takes on whether we thought it was good or not. It doesn't make it uh, right or wrong. It's just we all consume uh, music and movies and radio differently, right? We we just yeah. we see things through a different prism. And so we just try to figure out um, who are we as a band? Uh, when are we at our best? Um, and, and that's something that you, you just have to be open to listening to what fans say, um, how songs react. Uh, when do you feel most comfortable playing? What songs do you feel tightest playing and why is that and really deconstructing it the same way a football team does on on monday you know they they watch the game tapes and they try to figure out uh how can you improve and i think fozzy has done that and a lot of that comes down to um uh, some of us came from stuck mojo and have a long career in the music industry um where you know we wanted to be the greatest band of all time and we were kind of we were on a small indie label we always took it as us against the world. We were a gang. And so we've lived through that mentality. And Jericho is, went from being a, a, a wrestler who's 5'10 um, in a field of giants, six, excuse me, you know, these 6'8", six, 6'10 six, yeah. guys. And, and those guys were always the champion. And all of a sudden, you've got Chris Jericho's the heavyweight champion of the world six times over in a world of giants and these big, you know, and I think he just overcame diversity and knows how to climb the mountain too. So we, you know, I, I think there's a, enough wisdom of learning from life and uh, the struggle um, because let's face it, you gotta, you gotta climb up to base camp too and boil some water with some Sherpas and say, yeah, that's all I've got, and go back down a couple of times. <laughs> You're not always going to get to the summit on the first try. And I, I'm a big believer in knowing when to say uncle and then hike back down and say, that was cool, next year I got this. And, and that's been our motto. Yeah, and you definitely accomplished that. You know, like anytime I play a new record by an established band that I'm a fan of, I'm going through Juice, I always kind of like go back through the catalog just like because I'm just like hooked on the band again for that time. And I went back and I started playing Sin and Bones and I went to Chasing the Grill and Happenstance back to the first record. And I was like, damn, I can't believe that. You know, Fozzie still feels like the new band on the block, but they've been around almost 20 years when you think about it, another year or so down the line. It's been 20 years. Yeah. And I remember hearing about it. I'm like, 
I don't know, Chris Jericho singing in a band. I just, I'm actually, you know, I should say Moon Goose or Queen back then. But I was like, I don't know, man. It seems gimmick and ain't going to work. And then you start playing it. You're like, all right, th- there's something going on here. You can feel it. And you can feel that it's going to keep getting better and better if it, if it sticks around and, and it managed to do that. And thanks for saying. So I think, I think part of it for us was that we started with one mindset. And somewhere along the line, it, our mindset changed because the idea was Chris is a professional wrestler. We're the guys from Stuck Mojo. We, we meet each other and decide, wow, this is a, a, a cool opportunity to play some classic covers because that's what Fozzie started as, was a covers band um, with Chris Jericho as the lead vocalist. And we started off as the name of the band was Fozzie Osborne. So yeah. we were basically doing the Steel Panther thing before – Steel Panther, Panther was – yeah, and, and we were really good at it. And at some point, Chris said, hey, uh, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to take this a little more seriously. I'd like to make original albums and drop the gimmick and drop the wigs and, and really do this. And I, I, at the time, I was excited, not knowing that um, if you come out as one thing and then you decide somewhere midstream that you're totally something else – especially with the front man who plays characters on TV, people start to wonder if this is real and it really creates this big challenge for you to build an audience who respects you in that they don't really know uh, what to believe. Is this band still a joke, but they want to write their own stuff. And I think it was just confusing. So it, it has taken us a lot more time to earn the respect of the average rock and metal fan. And it's taken us a lot of time to earn the respect of the music business who generally frowns upon Keanu Reeves putting together a band or, um, you know, name any other kind of celebrity who decides he wants to be in the music business. They generally poop on it and decide that it has no value. So, the only reason I think we got over that hurdle is just because we have been around for 18 years. At some point, they they just say, "Oh, I guess this is real," um, <laughs> you know, because when Bruce Willis puts a blues band together and realizes that no one's going to take it seriously because it's Bruce Willis, and uh, and they kind of the press poops on it, then he gives up because he goes, "Well, this is no fun. I didn't make any money, and uh, I don't like being criticized, so I'm going to quit." And Chris just loves music. So when people said, Chris, you suck, uh, you're no uh, Brian Johnson, you're no Bruce Dickinson, he was like, yeah, you're right. I'm not. My name's Chris Jericho. I'll just keep going. And we just, we just kind of moved forward with what I like to call pure motives. You do it because you love it. Um, if someone gives you two bucks and you love it, it's the same as if they give you 10,000 bucks. You still love it. I mean, the payoff uh, financially is, is better because – uh, obviously, you can go to you can go to Longhorn Steaks as opposed to Taco Bell, but really, you're still doing it for the same reasons. Jericho doesn't need the money. He's not doing this because he needs to put a new addition on a swimming pool. He does it because he loves heavy metal and he loves hard rock music and he loves performing. If he, if it was just about being famous and and doing it for the cash, he'd just stay as a wrestler. I mean, there's no there's no secret that there's a lot of money in that business, especially at his at his status in the, in the business. No, I agree. And you know why? I mean, you know, Chris is, you know, he, he's in front of the spotlight all the time. So being up on stage is sort of natural for him, but you can hear him like his sound wise and his approach to singing and music. 
you can see the growth from the first record to Judas, album by album by album, how more comfortable he's become doing it and how better he is at as being a, a lead singer and a front man. And to me, I feel like when all that Remains record came out, that's when Fozzie became Fozzie to me. It kind of left behind what you guys were doing in the past. Was there a certain point over the albums or the years where you felt like this is the band that, you know, I kind of envision now and now we're where we are and where we're at. Absolutely. That was the moment. It was the All the Remains record. Uh, uh, Chris came to me and said, hey, um, you know, I, that, that, that is the moment that he said, I think we should take this more seriously. And I said, well, if, if we expect the fans to take us more seriously, then we're going to have to be judged not based on uh, what we did in the past, but what we're currently doing. And, and it's got to be really good. So I spent a lot of time on that record and really trying to, to do something that was special that would make us stand out. And some of the material was uh, some reimagined material that I had from a few years earlier, so which I really thought were already really standout great songs, and then some newer stuff. And and Chris at the time was really encouraging the band to push the the limits uh, in musicianship. So we were doing, you know, because we're all all of us are kind of prog fans in our own right, because some of our favorite bands like uh, Maiden and and Rush and Queensrÿche had really nicely incorporated prog into metal. And so we were doing kind of our own, uh, what would, what would we do if we were exploring the, the marriage between classic heavy music, uh, songwriting mixed with a bit of that kind of prog influence. So it was really cool. And, and then from there, then the challenge was to one up that and, and, you know, and with chasing the grail, we were really focused on, Proving because, of course, even though I think All the Remains was a, a really good record, it, it didn't get great critical reviews because, again, it was the it was the uh, it was the kind of monkey on our back that we were having to shake, um, and so it really just put fuel on the fire for us to continue to, to work really hard to to, to uh, earn our, earn the respect of the industry. We didn't feel like we we deserved it; we wanted to earn it. Yeah. Do you still put any thoughts into reviews or even care? Does it matter to you? Because your fans are your fans. Me personally, I don't read album reviews. I don't leave wide concert reviews. That's just one man or one person's opinion on how they feel. And if they're a fan, they're going to give you a great review. If they're not, they're going to give you a bad one. I mean, I, I give everybody and everything a chance because I'm the only person that's going to know if I like it or not. Do you put any like you know weight behind the review? Does it really mean anything to you after all these years? Yeah, I do. And, and I... I don't take it personal. So when I, so to answer your question, I read them and I, I do ingest them, but I don't, I don't, uh, if it's a great review, I don't go, hell yeah, I kick ass in the same way that I don't say, oh man, uh, God, this guy thinks I suck. I, I don't, I don't reflect on it emotionally in a way that, uh, you know, that I take anything personally. Cause just like we talked about earlier, I, I think a million people will, will view these albums and movies. And I mean, when I look at modern art, I think, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. Pretty much. It's in, it's in a gallery and it looks like uh, eighth grader finger painting. And yet somebody else can look at it and think it's genius. And um, so I, I don't, I don't assume that any, you know, that anybody's any one opinion is the right one, but I do read them because I find them interesting to, get inside different people's heads. I'll read other bands, album reviews as well. You know, uh, there's a lot of new records that have been coming out that I really enjoy. So I'm interested to see, you know, what, what somebody thinks of the new, uh, 
you know, Shaman's Harvest record or what somebody thinks of the new Sons of Texas record. And so, and they're friends of mine too. So, you know, I have an interest in wanting to see them do well. You know, it's, it's an interesting time. And the other thing is, is that, you know, 20 years ago, only a few people had the chance to, you know, leave reviews because they had jobs as quote unquote journalists in magazines. Now anyone can have a blog, anyone can have a website. So it opens it up to a lot of different opinions and a lot of different thoughts. And I think that's kind of cool. I, I like the, I like the citizen journalist. I think it's a cool thing. Yeah. I mean, do you let somebody's opinion like, like influential in any way? I mean, if somebody's being very complimentary about a, a song you wrote or a style of playing, do you let that kind of influence you in the future? We say, you know what, they kind of dug this, and maybe I'm going to try more of it. Or if they say, well, I didn't care the way he wrote this song or performed this or did that, does that kind of deter you from like maybe following through in that style? No, never. The only thing that it may affect is if, if there is uh, a lot of positive reviews and there's reaction from the industry and fans. The record company may come to us and say, hey, this really worked. We think you should do more of that, in which case then we can sit down as a band and decide, um, you know, what we think about that. Because uh, obviously a record company has a seat at the table. They get a say because they're the ones giving us the money to make albums. So we can't just tell them, no, we disagree with you. Fozzie's never at any point in our career, nor have I done it with Stuck Mojo, where we've allowed external forces to dictate the direction that we take a record or the direction that we take uh, the single. I think we've we've always kind of felt like, um, you know, we, as I said earlier, we do things with pure motives. The idea is to make records that 10 years from now we could put on and enjoy listening, uh, you know, that something that we created and that it was a, an honest assessment of who we are as a band and as players. And uh, so we've always done that. And I, I can see where it would be enticing to, to listen to one voice or to listen to, even if there was a lot of people, but, you know, history tells us that people are wrong a lot, <laughs> you know, that's true. <laughs> you don't have to say that. <laughs> you, you know, you know, Rich, I mean, even going back to Stuck Mojo and with Fozzie, you've been on Century Meter on and off, I mean, for most of your career. I mean, does the label really offer you a lot that you, you know, you're that loyal to them? Um, I, I've gone back to Century Media because I know them. And uh, I think the best thing that I can say about uh, how to create success is to find people that you have good relationships with. The owner of Century Media is Robert Camp, and I've I've had a man crush on him since I was a kid when I first met him. Uh, he's a nice person. He's a true he has a true artist soul. Um, I think he uh, I think he really cares about the people in the bands that he signs, and uh, and then there's other people that work for Century Media that work worry about the money and and protect the interests that have to be protected. Uh, but I, but there's a lot of the same people in the staff there that uh, have been really good to us over the years, and you know not all the faces are the same, but I think um, I think relationships are important, and I I think we kind of overlook that. I've had the same manager since 1992. He was the first manager I ever had uh, for Stuck Mojo, and I've never changed. And uh, are there bigger and better managers out there? I mean, I guess that's uh, – there's certainly bigger managers, um, 
Uh, but better's relative. I have a great relationship with my manager. He's the best man at my wedding. Um, you know, and I, I trust him, and he's my friend, and we, we're doing this together. And I think, I think people a lot of times see the new shiny uh, record company that offers you a lot of money, or they see the manager from the big company who offers, you know, you and some more opportunities to do bigger tours and stuff. And uh, it may look neat on the outside. The veneer is nice, but when it comes down to it, the most important thing is trust and respect. And uh, I, I'm, I've been wanting my whole life to just kind of surround myself with people that have those qualities that, uh, you know, because when times get tough, the big manager, when he's not seeing a lot of money uh, coming in from his 20%, uh, he's liable to dump you. And then you go back to your old manager and say, hey, sorry about that. I mean, I it was the guy from Metallica who was managing us. And, you know, I mean, you know, I had to leave. And he's like, yeah, I sure am. But but he's not going to take you back. You dumped yeah. him, you know, because you thought something else that you thought was going to be better for your career. And I've seen lots of bands change a lot of managers over the years. And I've seen lots of uh, bands label hop a lot. And I'm not saying it's bad for them. I'm just saying that uh, for me, I just think it was, it would be a mistake. And uh, early on, when Stuck Mojo left Century Media, uh, I went and worked with a couple of other labels thinking, you know, wow, this is going to be great, fresh start. And the entire time I just missed working with Century Media. So, yeah. uh, you know, a quick little lesson. Well, you think about Snapping Nets, 1994, 1995, it came out, if I remember. How was the business yeah. to you back then compared to, like, you know, putting out Judas Now? And I'm not just talking about Century Media. I mean, just the record business in general. I mean, the experience that you had going through that record and putting it out and what came with being on a label and the benefits of having a, you know, a label backing you compared to now. I mean, is it like night and day or is it still kind of the same? Uh, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think there are a lot of, you know, record companies that have been around a long time. They're, they're still holding on to some of their old practices and the, the things that have helped to make them successful. So they've hung on to, to some of those techniques, but obviously they've had to adapt and change the way they think and, uh, in the early days, uh, you know, we record companies gave tour support. So, uh, you know, we got offered to go and open for Machine Head was our first big national tour where we were the opening band. And it was very expensive to be on that tour because they weren't paying us. We weren't worth anything. We were only popular in, you know, the, the kind of eastern seaboard and not even every city, you know, it was more of a, you know, our, our real base of popularity was in the southeast at that point. So they were offering us an opportunity to play in Seattle and Portland and Sacramento. And we were playing all over the, the country in these areas that we'd, you know, never been to before in the a Great Lakes area. And we didn't have a value. So for us to be out on tour, the record company would cover your shortfall of expenses. And people always, you know, uh, ask, well, how did you survive? And I was like, well, in the budget, each member of the band got $15 a day for food. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I just thinking about that. Like I always look back on that. I remember that was like our big per diem. Everybody's like, what do you guys make a $15 a day? What? How do you live off of that? <laughs> like, well, it, you know, the alternative is just to stay home and work you know, cutting grass or whatever, yeah. or you could go out on tour and be in a band, 
you know, and, 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 and try your luck at it and see what happens. And, and I think that that whole era made me tough, you know, having to go out there and basically live like an animal because we, we weren't, there were many, many tours where we didn't have money for hotels. We would just find somebody after the show, talk to them and ask, can we stay at your house tonight? Yeah. So we just park the van outside their house and sleep on their floor. And I always used to find a closet to sleep in because I was always nervous. <laughs> Anyone who would let me stay at their house not knowing me, I didn't trust. So I would take all my crap and hide in a closet. <laughs> and just the sh- you know, and half my band would stay up all night long partying with them. And I, I you know, I was kind of a you know, straight-laced Boy Scout kind of guy. So I was always like, oh, God, I just put stuff earplugs in my ears and prop myself up in the corner of a closet. And But I remember those being uncomfortable. You know, when I when I see people on planes when we're going to Europe now and I see bands like, man, being stuck on this plane for nine hours sucks. I was like, yeah, try try sitting upright in a closet for four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. like, you guys are you guys are soft. And, and I, I think, you know, it's, and I, you always hear those stories from your grandfather about, yeah, when I used to go to school, you know, there's always those cliches, but there's something to that. There's something to, you know, toughening yourself up and being uncomfortable. And, and, you know, when I see people nowadays complaining about, you know, universal rights for this and that, it was like, I didn't even have air conditioning until I was 23 years old. And I live in Atlanta. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, like, I was damn hot, you know, it's like, it just, and it, it, it makes you who you are. And so, you know, in the times we had really bad tragedies in the band where I had to hitchhike from Dortmund, Germany to Gatlin, uh, at, uh, you know, airport in London overnight. Like, I didn't know whose car I'm getting into. I snuck on a ferry to cross the English channel, you know, it's like, but Sometimes being a wild animal and living like that, it'll make you play harder too. I mean, when you know you had 15 bucks to to buy eight, you know, bean burritos from Taco Bell, and that was to be you, you, you kind of smeared those eight burritos <laughs> over the day's, uh, you know, intake of food. You just, you just, it kind of makes you, it, it makes you hard, and it makes you work harder. And I, you know, I, I appreciate those days, especially nowadays. Um, that's a funny story. Uh, my air conditioning went out, um, uh, early this spring. And like I said, I live in Atlanta. It stays 90 degrees most of the summer. And for the first five weeks, I didn't get my air conditioning fixed because I was like, ah, listen, I got this. I'm not, listen, I'm not paying the money to fix this air conditioning. Yeah. After five weeks I was like, screw this. <laughs> I'm freaking dying over here. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so but like I said, it's it's all it's all relative, right? So the music industry has changed and sensory media has changed some, but um ultimately what it comes down to is making relationships with your fans, working hard, making sure you're playing great shows, making sure that you don't shortcut on your records and that you don't squander the budget. You put the budget where it needs to go in mixing in, in the quality of the recordings, in your mastering, making sure that who you're partnering with in the studio are right, because you don't get do-overs. You, you know, once that record's out there, you can make excuses to your fans all day long, but there's no do-overs and take-backs. So I think, uh, yeah, with that in mind, I think the essentials, the fundamentals are still in place. 
Oh, I agree. And like you're saying, it, it's definitely a hard thing being in a band and trying to make it. And I, I think because of the change in the business, I mean, if you go back to the heyday of, of metal, uh, you know, 80s and even into the 90s, or even if you go back to the 50s when, you know, record companies were king. I mean, you knew that with some hard work, you you did have a shot of making it. I mean, you know, it, it's I don't know if it's more luck or talent or if it's that one in a million shot, but you knew if you throw your eggs into the basket and things just were aligned the right way, you can make it as a musician and make a career doing it. And people didn't hesitate to live out of a van, not to work or not, I should say not to work, but not to get a nine to five job or do what they had to do. But today, it seems like that dedication is not there because either they don't think they have a shot of doing it, they don't even make it an attempt to to be in a band or be a musician or it's just like these kids today they just feel they're entitled to everything like well i'm not going to do that if they're not giving me a million dollars why bother yeah and i think it comes uh down i i agree with you and i and i will add on to that that i think in this in this day people have been programmed to think that um the best way to become successful is to get like a, a bunch of likes on your facebook page or a bunch of followers for your band's twitter page but uh and, and of course, that helps. It, it doesn't suck when you have a, the resource to reach out and, and you know, you know, stay in touch with your fan base, let you know where you're where you're playing, and be able to share music. But the fundamentals are still there. You still have to, you know, it's just like steroids. People are like, oh, steroids will make you big. Now you still got to go to the gym. Uh, you, you know, you still got to eat right. They're just a tool. I mean, the internet is a tool. It can help you, but you still have to put in the work. You've still got to get in that van, and you've still got to go out there and hustle and play the gigs and do it for free. Everybody thinks, oh, well, I'm not playing for free. That's giving it away. It's like, no, no, that venue has a stage with lights and PA, and they're giving something away to you, an opportunity to earn your keep. And we used to do that all the time. We, Stuck Mojo played for free for years. And what we would do is we would trade out shows. So we'd find a band in Raleigh, North Carolina, who was kind of popular, uh, we, you know, through our manager and other booking agents and clubs, we would find out who the popular bands were, and we'd ask them to do a show trade. So we'll bring you down to Atlanta where we're popular, and in exchange, you bring us up to Raleigh, and we'll do a show change. Of course, they weren't going to pay us to play in Raleigh because no one knows who we are. But yeah. the second time we'd come back to Raleigh, they'd give us 150 or 200 bucks, which would cover gas. Um, and then the next time we'd come back up there, hopefully we're building a following, and we're getting 250 bucks. And that's how you, you, you hustle it. You, gotta, you, know, you have to prove that you're willing to go and do the work. It's the same thing with college degrees. A college degree doesn't mean a lot today if you're not willing to show up to work on time and, and, you know, and be willing to work as hard, if not harder, than your coworkers. And I, I think people think that there are shortcuts now because the Internet has allowed us to, to – it has kind of eliminated the distance between things so people feel like that shortcut – still kind of eliminates the the actual hard work oh that's so true i mean you know you go back to the early days of music before the internet you know bands went out and shook hands uh, promoted the upcoming shows at other club shows when other bands were playing you know staple posters to telephone poles or mailbox anywhere they could and it seems like back then it was more like leg work and more physical work but you had better results in turnout than i think you do with the internet today absolutely we had flyer wars like Stuck Mojo versus every band in town. I mean, we would stand outside when every show let out. Every big band in Atlanta was handing out flyers to people coming out. We had them on every pole. We'd flyer the parking lots. We'd flyer parking lots at, 
At every gig there was at the mall, at high schools, on every telephone pole, and bands would put their poster on top of yours. And it was like, you know, and half the fun was after band rehearsal. You'd go up to Kinko's and put your flyers together. And, you know, again, not only was that kind of a, um, you know, it, it, it showed the promoters that you were a real hustler. And then the bands that were really hustling, the, the promoters would then give the opening slots when a national band would come through town. So that's yeah. how Stuck Mojo really, really started to kind of get its name for itself as we were really hustlers. I mean, we worked hard. Plus, it was the camaraderie of all four guys in the Kinkos, you know, doing clip art and making these flyers. It made us a tighter band as guys because it was like a gang, all these guys working together. And then on top of that, uh, you know, again, like I said, the promoter would see that we were doing all that hustling. And when 311 came to town, the Masquerade, the big rock venue in town, let us open up for 311. And it was a sold-out show with 1,500 people. And then the next, the next hometown show we did headlining, we had 700 people there. I mean, we had 500 more people just from playing one show. And that, was, and that came straight just from earning the respect of the promoters. And I, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing young bands. I'm just, all I'm trying to say is this is what, this is what I saw. And, 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 and I will tell you this, um, sometimes we have local bands that open for Fozzie and I don't see one poster that they put up. I go on their Facebook page. I don't even see a, a post. And I think, man, if I had the opportunity to open for a band that had several albums out and I was a local band, at at the very least, I'd be hustling my butt off to, to prove to the promoter that I brought a value to the show and that I made sure that my fans were up front representing us. And uh, and I, I'm not saying it's it's always, but I see it a lot. And I'm you know again, I don't know why it is. I'm I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know how to diagnose it. It's just it's a sign of the times, and it's disappointing. Yeah, it really is. You know, but you've been in bands your whole life, but 10, 12 years ago, you put out My Kung Fu Is Good. What a great solo record. Do you think you ever get back to uh, doing something like that again, or is it just not in the cards right now with everything going on? Yeah, I'm definitely going to do it again. I think part of um, part of that record came out of I had I, – I was going through a divorce, and like all great solo records, I think there was just – I had so much to talk about and I had so many things I wanted to write and they didn't feel right being sung by Chris Jericho or being under the umbrella of Fozzie because, I mean, of, of Stuck Mojo because they were my stories and I wanted to tell them. And I was lucky enough to, at the time, Spitfire, which was a great label, uh, was willing to sign me and let me put that record out. So I was, you know, it was, it was actually one of my favorite records I've ever done for a lot, mainly for personal reasons, but also because it was a, it was a real departure for me stylistically, and it was a lot of hard work, and I worked with some really talented guys uh, on that record that really helped. I mean, Eric Frampton on keyboards in particular was a, a really uh, amazing partner with me, and that he helped to to really uh, capture the essence of what I was going for in a lot of those moments. And yeah, it's, uh, again. It's about surrounding yourself with people that you trust and that, that can help bring the best out of you and that uh, the end result is great. And I, I would love to do another record. Part of the reason why I haven't is because I have since remarried and I'm really freaking happy. I was just going to say that. Out. 
I don't want to do an album full of, yeah, my wife is killer. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Yeah. I don't want you to put out a record just because you got to get divorced again. <laughs> you know? I know. It's the worst. I'm like, you know, and there's been some freaking heavy things that have happened in my life. Um, as as we get older, you know, you you have more friends that, you know, have have died because of accidents or or illness and there are some stories some really heartbreaking things that have affected me a lot and there are some things there that I would I would love to write and uh my the dynamic of some members of my family are just very very unusual and I so I do have some things I would love to say part of it is is allocating the right amount of time to it because you know those types of records for me require more time than a a really good riff and a really cool melody and lyric. It's something that is about textures and it's about capturing the essence of the lyric. And so, you know, those, those records for me uh, are harder to, to write and record. So I do have some ideas and eventually that record will see the light of day, even if it, if it, even if it doesn't get a quote unquote, um, uh, you know, proper release on a label. I'll I'll just put it up on the online for free or something, or you know, uh, or just release it independently. I, I, you know, it's the the, the days of uh, there's a lot of musicians out there who, when they leave their band and they think they're going to do really well on their own, and realize that oh, no one gives a crap about me unless I was in that band. I, you know, like I feel really bad, like because it's there's so many bands putting out records nowadays. It's not like when Richie Sambora leaves Bon Jovi and everybody's like, I wonder what Richie's doing. You know, yeah. <laughs> even now, even now people, I don't think care a whole lot about what Richie's doing. Um, nah. <laughs> because there's so many bands, you know, it's like there's thousands of releases. Like it's, 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 it's crazy. So, you know, if you're going to do something that's important to you, that's super personal and you want it to be out there, Hey, self-release is not a bad way. Absolutely. Do you find that you write better then, or you have more things, more interesting things to write about when it's coming from like heartache or stuff like that than the happiness part of you? Yeah, especially in you know I'm I'm not in a you know I'm not in a a, a power punk pop band where we sing about baby you're so fine and I just love you so much and like I, I, that actually makes me feel uncomfortable. Those kind of bands and those lyrics yeah. like it. Yeah, like it, it actually it bothers me, and that's why I never like Poison. I never like bands like that because they could never really relate to the messaging. I always thought Poison's music was when I was a kid. I thought that, you know, Talk Dirty to Me was a cool rock riff, and you know, I didn't dislike them. It's just it didn't resonate with me, um, you know, as a as in the lyrics. And I I always liked Judas Priest and and Maiden and. Uh, you know, and the Scorpions were one of the few bands that I, I really liked that, you know, kind of crossed the line into silly kind of love uh, sex stuff. And I, I don't yeah. know if it was because Klaus's voice was, you know, obviously his German accent was so thick, I couldn't understand what he was saying anyway, so maybe it didn't matter. <laughs> but um, I just it's one of those things I could never see myself doing a record like that just because it, it would be – fake i'd be i'd be you know i'd be pretending to be somebody else and there have been songs on fozzy records where jericho has written some lyrics that i didn't identify with but we're again we're in a band um 
So not everything has to be approved by Rich Ward. We have five guys that get a say. And if Chris likes some lyrics and feels strong about it, uh, you know, then I remind him later when he says, yeah, I'm not crazy about those lyrics. It's like, yep, but guess what? We're going to do it because I didn't like yours. <laughs> and that's just the way being in a band is. That's just a relationship. You know, when your wife says, uh, I don't want to go eat Chinese tonight. It's like, yeah, well, I didn't want to go eat pizza last night either. That's why we're going to eat Chinese. And, and you just – and, and then she laughs at you for being a knucklehead, and you move forward and go to Chinese. You don't say it disrespectfully, but life is compromised. But if I'm putting a solo record out, I, there's no way I could do a, um, you know, I could do thank you to my wife for not lying to me and not being a total piece of crap. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. man, I, I get that. And, hey, Rich, I'm not going to keep you, man, because I don't want the next people waiting. <laughs> I, I know. No, listen, you know. listen. I'm so happy to have a chance to talk with you, and especially uh, as we we mentioned earlier, uh, my interviews yesterday went long, so we didn't get to catch up. So I'm today. I'm I'm so happy that I had the time to to sit down and really talk with you and and shoot the breeze. These are my favorite kind of interviews, in that we just talk and we get a chance to really you know uncover a lot of topics and talk crap, man. I love it. Oh, uh, absolutely. But I have to tell you, the new record is amazing. I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing you, because I'm a fan of the band, even before I did this show. And this one is definitely top-notch. Uh, the 13th of October is the official release date, right? It is. Friday the 13th. Jason Voorhees nah. approved. <laughs> it don't get better than that. What, you got anything on tap for the rest of the year with the band? Are you going to kind of uh, hold off to 2018? No, we've got a bunch of stuff. We, uh... well, what part of the country are you in? You're, New York you're City. East? Uh, New yeah, York City. You put a tell by the accent. That's pretty good, but yeah, <laughs> New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to say, hey, you're from New York. You're like, no, I, I'm living in West Palm Beach, but I, I am <laughs> from New York. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, we'll be in Niagara Falls on October 3rd. Uh, so we're, you know, we're um, we're touring this, this spring, uh, excuse me, this fall from kind of like three weeks in, in September and October. Then we go to uh, Europe. Uh, for four weeks, and uh, and then that's the rest of our year. So we've, you know, we're we're right up until about the holidays, and then we take off until February, and then we're back out in it again. So, yeah, we're we're staying really busy. It's it's nice. Uh, Chris just released a new book, and he finished his book tour uh, right in time for our record to come out. And so we're, you know, we're all all guns a blazing. I don't uh, think you're allowed to say thing. that anymore. You know, no. I say guns blazing. Yeah. <laughs> Not in this country. You can't say nothing ever. You, this is my show. You can say whatever the hell you want to say on here. It's crazy, man. You're not allowed to say anything. Yeah. Like, that, that's right. I, I actually, uh, saw, I actually I saw Chris I saw Chris Kale from Five Finger defending some innocent tweet that he put out and some being attacked. It's like, holy, you, you really have to have um, uh, Kevlar skin. You just can't care because nowadays – Anything you say is, is, you know, is, is off limits. And, you know, especially being kids of the 80s where, you know, in 80s movies, you watch them now and the, the, they say all kinds of stuff that would never even be allowed to be said today. And yet back then, nobody thought about it. It wasn't sexist. It wasn't racist. It wasn't homophobic. It was none of that stuff. And we all were kind of living, letting live. I lived in a mixed neighborhood. And no one cared. It was like, 
you know, Hispanics and blacks and Asians all lived on my same block, and no one even thought about it. But now everybody has to care so much, and it just bums me out because I, yeah. I, I like the innocent time of when I went to school and I was just friends with who I was friends with because we had common interests in skateboarding or movies or music or sports, and now everybody's going to click. Everybody's got to have their own little team, and you got to defend your, you know, you got to dis- defend your little tribe and your little posse, and and it, it, and it's leaked into heavy metal because if you like death metal, you can't like groove metal, and if you like yeah. uh, new me- new metal, you have to hate black metal, and it's like, oh, it just bums me out. Again, old man Ward talking, but when, no, no, you know, I agree I'm with you. A, I agree. We turn into a sick I'm, world. I'm, I mean. You know, I, I was watching crazy, the Don right? Rickles roast the other day. I was watching Don Rickles rip on the blacks, the Jews, the gays. I'm like, just laughing. I'm like, this is what I grew up with in the 70s and the early 80s. Nobody kid. Nobody took offense to anything. It was just a joke. It was for fun. And today, everybody's so sensitive. It's this world we live in right now. And it, it's a horrible, horrible place, in my opinion, the way it turned into. I, t- I completely agree. They, they went after Chappelle for making some uh, transphobic joke. It's like, it's a joke, right? I mean, at some point, you can, what are you going to make fun of now? Like, wh- wh- what's the joke going to be? Is it all going to be uh, cat jokes? And then, the, <laughs> then people, who, people who work for PETA are going to shut you down? You can't say that about a cat. <laughs> I, listen, that's coming up soon, I think. Because <laughs> there's nothing left in the pick on anymore. It's crazy. I know. Right? It's, it's on the way. I know. You and I are going to be a protected class eventually. Don't get around. We'll have our own uh, little lobby. Don't make fun of us. We listen to metal. We're, we're protected. That's right. <laughs> well, you know what? In my mind and on this show, it's still the 70s and 80s to me. So <laughs> no matter what Amen. decade goes on, Amen. and I love it. Hey, we're I'm with you, man. Well, we're, brother, I, we're brothers for life. Thanks for the time, baby. Absolutely. You take care, Duke. It was great talking to you. You as well. And I, uh, I look forward to maybe seeing you. We um, just, just as a side note, we've got a uh, – on the, I believe it's the 15th, uh, yeah, it is, it's the 15th, we haven't announced it yet, but on the 15th of October, we've got a listening party in New York City, it's being ha- uh, handled by Loudwire, um, and just just to let you know, uh, the, the number you see is my cell phone number, if you want to send me like a, a little message or something, and in, I'll be in the city for a couple of days, uh, like I said, there's a there's a signing and there's a, a listening party and a bunch of stuff. If you want to come down, please let me know. You're my guest. I will absolutely do that, Rich. I'm looking forward to it, man. I will see you then. All right. Sounds great, Mike. Thank you so much, uh, my friend. Uh, all right. You take care, brother. Bye. Good talking to you. Good Bye-bye. Night. You too. Bye.
Evil with Son of a Bitch. Man, what a great EP that was back in the day. I believe Evil's Message came out around the beginning of 84. Uh, the band was around a couple of years before that. Put out some killer demo tapes. Then kind of disappeared for a very long time. Uh, but Freddie Wolf kind of put the thing back together, even though it was just him, around 2007, 2008. And not much really happened until 2015 when he put out the Shoot the Messenger album. Sounds nothing like the old days of uh, Evil. I mean, it's more modern metal record. We had Freddie on the show at that time promoting it. Uh, I wasn't crazy about it. I mean, I would never tell an artist that, but uh, it just didn't have that evil vibe to it. And he kind of knew that. He was just looking to do something, I think, a little different. And he put together a band of players to kind of help out on the record. But I don't think they're even around anymore. I think Freddie packed it in not long after that record. And before that, some more brand new Fozzie with Burn Me Out. Chris Ward, what a super nice guy. I tell you, I enjoyed talking to him. That was a long interview, almost an hour long. The guy can really chew your ear off, and I'm glad, because sometimes you get guests on the show that have nothing at all to say. And he's just a super nice guy and a real fan to the friend, a real friend to the fans, I meant to say. So when Fozzie comes to your town, check him out. We were supposed to interview Chris Jericho also uh, in, the, in the upcoming weeks, but I will be on vacation when having his press day and won't be able to do it. Uh, but Rich is a really cool guy. So pick up the album and support the band. All right, we still got Danny Filth from Cradle of Filth and Bob Kulick coming up. I guess this show is definitely going to be running more than the normal two hours tonight. So I uh, hope you can stick around with us. If not, you can always catch the replays later on. Uh, it looks like Sebastian Bach is bitching about Striper again. Him and Michael Sweet have been going at it for a couple of years now. Uh, you know, I'm no fan of Sebastian Bach, as anybody listens to the show knows. I think Michael Sweet is one of the nicest guys we've ever spoken to on the program. You know, a real sweetheart of a guy using his name in a word over there. But, you know, he's saying now he's saying like Stripe his music is shit. And uh, you know, they're not worth anything in the world. I don't know if Sebastian Bach has heard anything he's done since leaving Skid Row. And even when he was in Skid Row, he really didn't write any of that music anyway to begin with. You know, it was all the other guys in the band that wrote the music. Sebastian Bach hasn't put out a good record or a good song in three decades. So for him to talk about Striper that really just makes me laugh. I mean, the guy has zero talent whatsoever. And at 50-something years old, he still wants to fight and kick everybody's ass. I'm waiting for something. I wish, I, I wish Kimbo was still alive so he could have just walked up and knocked him out and punched him in the face. He's such a prick, that guy, and he has no talent whatsoever. So for him to talk about any other, any other musician in this business, it's just sad. Very sad. All right, Stephen Adler once again talking about hoping he could play with Guns N' Roses. That's every Stephen Adler interview. He's been pretty quiet. I haven't heard much in the, you know, he hasn't done much or said much lately, uh, but now he's all over Blabbermouth and Brave Words again talking about how he wants to play with Guns N' Roses again. They threw him a little bone. They let him play one or two songs, like on two shows on that tour, you know, and then he bitched about that, that they flew him out to the shows. They made him play one song. They kind of brushed him off and didn't even bother with him. But yet he still wants to go back to play that. I mean, the man has no career outside of Guns N' Roses, so he's dying for them to take him back. It's just never, ever going to happen. Maybe they'll let him play. So I would be more insulted if a band I was a part of that made it really big, you know, reunited after decades of people wanting it to happen with at least the core lineup. It's not the whole lineup. Izzy's not in the band, you know, and, and, and Stephen Allen's not in the band. Uh, but, you know, I'd be more insulted if they made me come out to play one song than anything else. But he's so desperate for attention and so desperate to want to be up on that stage again that he'll just keep coming back time and time again like a dog, you know, you keep throwing a bone to It's very sad. Very sad. All right, let's get on some more music here. This is a new band called The Cater out of Canada. I believe Ottawa. I'm not sure. I have to double check it uh, out to make sure. But uh, pretty good speed metal, power metal, 
freshmen all mixed together. Here's a song called Eternal War.
Fight that metal war. That was mess out of Germany. I mean, this band has actually been around since like 1970, 71 under the name Black Mass. Uh, I think it was like in 1973 or four that they changed it to just Mass. And the first record, Back to the Music, came out in 1977. So they've been around for a very long time. I mean, they broke up, uh, I want to say 87 is when they officially broke up. Because the last record, I believe, was Kick Your Ass. 1986 so yeah it was about a year after that but they are back together they did reunite I mean if you could call it a reunion I mean it's just the bass player from the original lineup of the band from back in 73 I mean I don't know I don't know what's worse when a classic band reunites with just the bass player as an original member or just the drummer I don't know which one of the two was worse I mean you could kind of accept it when it's the main guitar player or the singer but when it's just the bass player or a drummer I don't know. Who knows what the music is going to sound like now. But it just happened this year in 2017. So, you know what? We'll give them a chance. See what they put out next year. See what happens. I do believe they are signed to SPV. So, I'm pretty sure we're going to get a new record out in uh, 2018 by Mass. And right before that, a little paradox with Beyond Space. All right. It's time to talk to Danny Filth from Cradle of Filth. And I'm still have Bob Kulik after that. So, stick around. Danny, this is Mike. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Pleasure to talk with you today. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I, I know you're busy doing these things all day long, so you've probably been asked the same question a thousand times, so <laughs> I'll try to keep them a little different if I can. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> Listen, I have to tell you, another amazing record. Uh, one thing about Cradle of Filth is that you probably have been the most consistent band out there. I mean, every year or two, there's a new record. Well, thereabouts, yeah. Every every two years. Well, that, that's pretty impressive because a lot of bands that have been around for twenty something years have kind of given up on new music. They feel like they're just going to go out there, you know, play their hits or play the old albums, not even bother recording anymore because of the industry. But you know, you keep putting out better and better albums, you know, with each one. Well, we do try our best, but it would seem a little silly not to. Uh, uh, sorry, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, um, yeah, sorry. Um, it would seem a little silly uh, to cut short, well, it wouldn't be cutting short our career, but without the introduction of new music, although saying that it's getting harder and harder to actually formulate a consistent set list nowadays because of the amount of, you know, albums that we've got to choose from. At the moment, I think we've narrowed down our set list to about three weeks long. <laughs> I can imagine uh, It probably does get harder as time goes by But, I mean, could you see the band Existing on In a, in a world without writing and creating new music? Sorry? Could you see this band going on If you weren't able to write new music You know, every couple of years? Well, uh, I mean, if you're going to stop Recording full stop I think that would be ridiculous But I think a lot of bands Are in the habit of releasing albums like four or five years, which to me seems an eternity. Especially, you know, when you get someone like Slayer's age, and I don't mean any offence by it, because I'm 44 now, and they've got to be in their early 50s or, you know, just touching 50. So to leave five or six albums, uh, years between albums just seems like when they get come around to playing their new album they're going to be you know closer to their 60s true and uh you know life you know life actually hasn't designated any time 
capacity for extreme metal bands, but I should imagine it's going to look a bit fucking stupid doing it at 70. <laughs> I understand that. I mean, not even the age factor. Do you think when you take too many years to record or put out new music that a lot changes? You know, I mean, you've seen this scene over the last 25, 30 years. I mean, you know, it's like a roller coaster. I mean, what's here today could be gone tomorrow. So do you worry about not striking while the iron is hot and you can make money and capitalize on, on what you're doing? Well, obviously, if you're still touring, that's where the money's being made. And that's, I guess, where bands are, are thinking, mm, you know, I don't, we don't really need to do a new album yet. We can, we can large it up at the festivals and, and, and do a tour here. And, you know, and they can keep doing that. If they can do that for three or four years, then they're laughing, really. Yeah. On, but for us, we feel the necessity to write new material. We, we'd stagnate, we'd get bored. Um, it seems like this album's been out ages. It's only actually been out since last week. <laughs> because we delivered it back in mid-June. Um, so we've been sitting on it quite a while. Yeah, I was going to say that, because when you do put out new music, I mean, you know, sometimes it can be up to a year that you're actually working on the album, the music, day in and day out. So by the time it comes out, it can already be old school for a lot of the band members <laughs> that put it out. But for the fans, it's brand new. Well, yeah, but... We also didn't actually... I only got copies of the album yesterday. So it's the first time I'd seen it, which I thought was a little strange. But, yeah, I mean, we've obviously heard the album to death, so it's not fresh for us, but then we are the creators of it. So it's good to finally get to read reviews and see what the general public feel of the record as opposed to... Um, as opposed to the hundreds of interviews I've done, because obviously you're doing them primarily with journalists, and hopefully journalists who are favourable towards your your output. Yeah. Do you do you worry about reviews, or do you put any like you know any thought behind it? Is it important for you, or do you kind of just not care at this point in your career where you put out what you want to make yourself happy? And the yeah, I, I, I'm only bothered. I'm only bothered when I when I read a review that is. Uh, and I have read a couple where I actually left questioning whether the person actually listened to the album because they made so many mistakes you, um, that you just think, what on earth? Well, you listen to the same album because you, your opinion is vastly different from everybody else's. There's one person who said you could barely hear the drums. That's going, have you, have you, your hearing must be gone. Seriously, your hearing must be really impaired or you've got a really shit stereo. <laughs> um, so and in those instances, you know, I get a little annoyed, but then and I think, well, it evidently isn't what this person's saying, so they're in the wrong. Um, but we do listen to, you know, if there are justified comments, but on this record, it's all been very, very positive, apart from a few naysayers. But as I've mentioned, they've been so in opposite to, to fact and, and to what the people are saying about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, not everybody's going to like everything that everybody does out there. In God, no, no, you can't appease everybody. Yeah. I, I was saying that the other day. If um, There were a few naysayers as well who were saying, oh, it's the worst album ever, or you should have done this, should have done that, I would have done this. And you think, right, if we appease just those people and not, it didn't please anybody else, then even those people would probably then turn around and go, 
Oh, it sounds very contrived now. It sounds like they're trying to make it work for us. So you're never going to, ever going to, um, you're never going to write something for everybody. So take it at face value, write it for yourself, firstly, fans secondly, and if they like it, that's great. But then all the other people on the periphery will, well, I know know a few words I can say about that. (laughs) Yeah. Do you find that today people are just more vicious and more evil or mean, I mean, when it comes to talking about bands and music than it was 25 years ago? I mean, it's like, you know, all right, I don't like the new record. I'm not that big a fan of it. That's okay. But, I mean, they get very vicious today where instead of just saying, it's not my cup of tea. Well, it's uh, strange you say that. I was having a conversation with a friend who isn't into uh, metal at all. Um, and I've been trying to uh, barbecue to my, you know, integrate a few ideas and he's actually said to me that he, he, the scene is just so bitchy he's never known anything like it and i said yeah but it's social media that platform the fact that everybody can be you know judge jury and executioner whoever you are from wherever you are you could be but from butts fuck fucking texas or whatever yeah. you know never go out and yet you can still be on the council with your opinion to all and sundry and people love it people love giving their opinions otherwise facebook wouldn't and youtube wouldn't have a thumbs up and a thumbs down capacity do you know what i mean i don't know why you need to say that anyway i like this i don't like it or you know even have to go further and saying you know the other day on our page somebody was saying um you know lots of congratulations about the new album and this one guy just out of the blue just goes yeah, it's a good album, I've got to admit, but it's not as good as Dusk and Embrace. And I just thought, well, what was the point of even saying that to the band as well? You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> just, you know, he's got to say it to someone. It's just, and that's the trouble now. Those people, everybody has got an opinion and they want everybody else to hear about it. Yeah, that that is one of the bad parts or one of the downfalls of social media like Facebook and these other sites because you didn't have that 25 or 30 years ago. Uh, well, no, back then it was all tape trading and, and word of mouth and writing letters. You didn't have time. You're writing a letter. You're not going to write another letter to someone else saying why you don't like something. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But it also makes, I mean, you know, with the social media today, I mean, anybody and everybody could also have a band. They don't have to go through with you and other people went through all those years ago when you had to really know how to do what you were doing, make an effort, you know, try to get signed to a label. Today it's like one man could play five instruments on a computer by himself, put an album out on Facebook, and, and that's a band. And people give it time and creed where they didn't actually earn, you know, the respect of the hard work that goes into getting signed to a label like you had to do years ago. And that's true. Does that make it more difficult for established acts where, you know, I just think no. I just think it pollutes the metal highway. I just think there's uh, in that capacity, you're getting more and more bands with less and less um, return. You know, less and less people actually want to purchase a physical copy of an album. They'd rather, you know, pay. I don't even think people like paying for Spotify. They think they've got a given right to just be able to download any music whenever they want, free. You know, they consider it. Like air, it's it's just something that God has given everybody. It's music. It's you know, it's intangible. You can't actually put it in your pocket or or look at it. But the same apply. You just would not go into a convenience store and help yourself to vegetables and fruit because they grew on trees, would you? You you know, if that was your excuse, well, I'm taking this. It's free. It grew it grew from you know on trees and that. 
you'd be arrested. So, yeah. and also it it pees me off a lot when the government spends so much money protecting the the movie industry. So much so that in England we have uh, before film, you know, in the trailers and what have you, there will always be one about piracy and do not take a video record, do not, you know, yeah. stream. And at the end of it, they always have a sound of a massive, you know, like jail door shutting like the gates of hell. Boof! Just to reinforce that, you know, that scenario that you will get punished. But they don't really give two hoots, really, about the music industry. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The Conservative government actually put more and more money into putting, um, like, uh, recordings, uh, you know, free recording studios, loads and loads and loads of them into various establishments, uh, you know, colleges and universities and schools. And literally within two years, wiped out the recording industry. Because people are able to do it for free, you know. Oh, we can just go to the school and do it for nothing. They've got all the equipment. Yeah, no, you're right. Do you think it's a generational thing? I mean, do you find that because uh, we're in the same age group, you and I? I mean, do you find that people from our generation still buy the music and pay for it? It's the younger people that expect yeah, I, it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I, I, I do find that that people and metal fans, fortunately, are very loyal, and they like to have not the physical product, you know, in 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 respect of they want to see the nation's plastic. You know, they, you know, they don't. They want it because they want to read the lyrics. They want to see the artwork. They want to feel part of it. They want to feel like they're supporting the band. That's why bands like Maiden and Metallica have such loyal followers. That's how they put Maiden at number one in Britain and all across Europe. You know, as soon as they put any product out, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a signed piece of spinach, and uh, you know, people will be queuing up to buy it. Metal fans are loyal and they do want the physical product. Um, or at least, like I say, and I can only relate, like you say, to the people of our age group. But then when we were, were young, we, we would go out and forage, you know, it would be a hunter-gatherer. We'd go to records yep. and spend hours. And that, would, you know, that was half the fun. Half the fun was finding stuff. Oh, my, wow, I can't believe it. I found this album. Or, wow, look at this. They've got bullet belts, you know. They're, they're from Germany. They've got them great. Guy's got a possessed T-shirt on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, do you think if the band was formed today that you would have the success and be able to have made it the way you have starting back out, you know, in the 90s? You were working in a much smaller field in a genre that you guys basically kind of helped start, you know, the extreme metal genre. Very well, small yeah, in, in, in that respect, then I don't think we'd have success. We put a lot of groundwork into, into you know, it, it may look to people that we just came out of nowhere, but that's that's like saying that for anybody that you don't really know. We... Uh, we 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 had a lot of hard graft, a lot of touring, a lot of um, you know one-off shows, and I remember writing and tape trading, and I even drew covers for for magazines, you know, like underground uh, photocopied magazines that kept the scene alive, you know. And we, you know, we toured with Emperor uh, back in '93, um, and uh, it was the first tour they ever had done, and it was about five shows in England. England and Scotland and the Scottish show attracted three people. There were less people in the audience than there were in one of the bands. 
Um, so yeah, there was it was a lot of work, and you know we took a record company to call and took two record companies to call, and we had an album that was um, taped over, and another one that we had to re-record, and yeah, we definitely play, paid our dues. True. You know, Dad, I, I, the new record, it's got this really deep, dark, Victorian type of theme going on in it. And then if you go back to the principles of Evil Made Flesh, everything about the band has been dark and, and, and doomy and dreary. I mean, is that the kind of world you live in, or are you just an incredible well, storyteller? Well, I wouldn't go dreary. In fact, I find it very exciting. Dreary implies that, you know, to me, dreary is the Smiths. <laughs> true, true, true. I just meant um, the, the aura of some of the of the songs. That, is that the kind of world you like to live in, or are you just a great storyteller that you dig deep into that kind of part of your mind and, and create these stories? Well, no, I do live. I think the band live it as well. I've always been interested in this kind of thing. The, the occult got quite an extensive library um, of books on the subject matter. I used to live um, in a house that was off frequented back in the 17th century by Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General in a, in a town, well, village actually called Hadley. Um, and I still live in the Witch County as it's known. So I've grown up around all this sort of thing. Um, yes, still maintain the interest. Now I live in a Victorian house surrounded by weird and wonderful things and massive, massive horror movie buff. Um, yeah, so it, it it completely surrounds us. If you, I'm actually in my office now, and it literally is like a a, a, a museum of toys and horror and and just weird statues and stuff like that. Um, it, no, it's just something that's always um, influenced uh, us, and uh, I think when metal came along as well, and, com- and that combined with the love of monster movies and horror movies. It all fell into place and uh, became the catalyst for the ideas behind Cradle of Filth. Um, yeah, it's, it's something the whole band lives. Yeah, and and we and coming back to that full circle to say about the dreary comment. It's we we enjoy it, we love it. You know, we embrace it. It's great. Yeah, well, sort of the fans. And you're talking about the band. It's been a pretty consistent lineup uh, over the last couple of years with the group. Is is that, I mean, I'm sure it's great because, you know, the band members know each other, you work better together in sync, but when you do bring in new members, it must reinvigorate the band, especially if they bring in something different to the group. It does. Um, and the reason for our multiple lineup changes isn't people being sacked, because I think only one, maybe two people in our entire career have been sacked. It's much the same as when people work at anywhere really radio stations or magazines or wherever really people come and go of their own volition whether it's because they think they can do better elsewhere the job doesn't suit them they don't like the long hours don't like being away from the family you know they grow out of it it's you know there's multiple multiple reasons why um people are part of ways with the band um, and yes, we do have a very stable lineup now, which has been in effect for four to five years, two albums. We get on very well together. Um, this album was written by everybody working in their, wherever they are, scattered across the known galaxy, Canada or Czech Republic or Scotland or England, wherever. And then we came together in Brno in the Czech Republic, where the drummer and one of the guitarists lived. 
and then we collated all our ideas. So it was a bit of a team building exercise, but also an album building exercise. Um, and when we were on tour, we obviously spend a lot of time together. So we make good use of that by sightseeing together and going out partying together, um, keeping in regular contact when we're not on tour as well. Because obviously, as mentioned, we all live in different parts of the world. So I find that, yeah, that is very important. And uh, the current lineup is, is, is thick as thieves, which means we're, we're quite a strong unit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, with, when it comes to band members, you think it's more of a lack of commitment, whether it's, you know, time or finances, that they don't realize what they're getting into when they kind of hook up with the band. They don't realize how much work is involved in it and touring and going on the road and other stuff. Yeah, that, that's part and parcel of it. And, and sometimes it, it literally is the fact that people see it and think, well, you know what, I'm get, I can go off and I'll be my own boss, I'll do my own band and it's easy and it, you know, and it never works out like that. But that's happened with quite a few people. Um, and then there's been other, you know, we've had a couple of incidents where people have had to retire from the music industry because of injuries as well. Um, our previous guitarist, James McIlroy, I mean, I think he's he's in a band again now, but he suffered really bad, um, a really bad uh, neck problem. Had to have something done to his vertebrae. They literally put him out of action for for a long time. So, um, yeah, the path is fraught with danger. Absolutely. Well, look, you got a busy year coming up. I know you guys are hitting the road real soon. You're going to be out, and I believe it goes right into next year. Yeah, absolutely. In uh, less than three weeks' time, we play uh, Lao Park in Japan. Uh, I haven't even started rehearsing yet. I've got to start rehearsing next week. <laughs> I know, you take... You take quite a time out and it, it becomes like uh we get back into the swing of it then we go to um we do a british and irish tour um then we've got a couple of penciled in um exotic shows can't say what they are because not only will i jinx them but they're not actually you know that uh, it's being sorted out so that takes us up to christmas we have a video shoot and some more rehearsals then we hit Europe for nine weeks. We're back for a week. Then South America, America, Canada, back to Japan, back to Australia. And then we end in um, Philippines, I think it is, about June time. And we're only undertaking a handful of summer festivals next year. And that's primarily because we want to do the winter ones. And then the following year, rather than sitting on our asses doing fuck all, we'll have that whole summer. Um, to do summer festivals, thus uh, adding a little longevity to the break between albums. So I think the next album, just because of the amount of touring we're going to be doing, we'll more than likely see a release in what's next year, 2009, the back end of 2019. Wow, you guys got the whole world covered coming up. <laughs> Well, yeah, apart from Antarctica, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, do, do you find this, I mean, with the internet today, it, it kind of allows a band to, like, find out where their fan base is, know where, you know, the, the strongest audience is. Do you kind of use that when when you're going out on tour? Do you just say, you know what, we're going anywhere and everywhere we can, and if we don't have fans there, we're going to win them over? Well, it'd be nice to say that. Um, sometimes we do choose, if we get offered exotic places, we try and get it put in on this particular um, world tour, we've actually got these One World Alliance tickets, which means that 
we could do the whole world, but we have to do it in the, you know, we can't back, we have to do it continent by continent. And I think we have to do it um, clockwise. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, obviously clockwise makes sense, but the actual process of having to do this uh, One World Alliance, uh, it's a, everybody gets tickets and uh, and then you earn club cap. It's quite complicated, but it saves the band and promoters a, a great deal of money in the long run. Yeah. But if we can fit um, gigs in that we haven't, you know, or areas that we haven't um, actually played before, all the better. For example, I think after Russia, we're going to Tel Aviv, which is a new addition um, to the back end of the European tour, which obviously is Israel, and we've never played in Israel before. And I know we've got a good fan base over there, but it's not massive. So, yeah, in answer to your question, we do get to pick and choose, but obviously we won't play somewhere that there's no demand. I don't blame you. Well, Danny, I'm not going to keep, I know you have a whole bunch of these things to do today. The new record, Cryptoriana, The Seductives of Decay, you did an amazing job on this record. No different than any album in the past. I mean, you guys just keep putting out quality work time and time again. And I can't wait for you guys to get back to the U.S., especially on the East Coast. I would love to see you live. It's been a while. Yeah, cool. Without being April. I'll be right there. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks so much for the interview. Take care. You too. Take care, Danny.
Okay, that was brand new, Cradle of Filth with Heartbreak and Silence. A couple of great guests so far tonight, but I'm sure that's going to come to an end pretty soon. <laughs> All right, it's already 8.15 here on the East Coast. Get on one or two more songs and a quick interview with Bob Kulik, and then we're going to wrap it up here tonight. Next week is the 15th next Sunday for our next show. We've got great guests and Brian Blake from Genghis Khan. Heaven and Hell Records is reissuing their old stuff. We plan some tunes from that album, as well as Eric Wagner from The Skull and Trouble and Blackfinger. We talked to Eric, it's been a couple of years since he, he was on the show, and he was a pretty funny guy if I remember last time we had him on, so that should be a pretty interesting interview. All right, let's play one or two more tunes, then we'll get into that Bob Kilk interview. How about some Sacred Oath with Message to the Children? <laughs>
All right, there you go. Maltese Falcon. That was off the Metal Rush record from 1984. The band's one and only album. They had about two demo tapes that came out before that record. No Remorse released them on a compilation album, a CD, back in 2012. Then they had about two or three demos after that record, and they kind of broke up and went away. I believe they were signed to Roadrunner back in the day. Right before that, Sacred Oath with Message to the Children. Sacred Oath has put out like two records over the last couple of years and have completely gone under the radar. I mean, I don't even think I had the last one. I mean, they just put out a record with no press, no hype, no anything. Uh, and nobody even knows that they're out most of the time. But they're still out there. And I believe they just played in Brooklyn not long ago. They did a show. All right. Well, we got about a 10-minute interview with Bob Kulik that we did this past week. I'll get that on right now. We'll do one or two more songs, and we'll kind of wrap it up here tonight. Here you go. Make of what you will. Hello. Bob, this is Mike calling back for our interview. Sorry about that. No problem. No problem. No worries. Okay. I, I was getting back to what I was saying before is that you, you called together this amazing amount of guests to be on your record. And to other people, that's a difficult thing to do. But for you, you seem to have made it so easy, like all the years, all the records that you do. Well, I guess a, a lot of it was that uh, a lot of the musicians and singers that I was using to start off with were people that I had been on the same bill with touring-wise. So when I worked with Meatloaf, we played with tons of bands, like the Monsters of Rock and other shows that we did. And so networking through those, you know, I was able to, you know, get to know a lot of those guys. And then when I started producing compilation records and stuff like that, got to know a whole bunch of other guys. So that made it a lot easier, as you're saying, to be able to call people that you're already friendly with and you have a working relationship with. Yeah. What I like is that you kind of went back into your past a little bit on this record and dug up some old songs that, for me, I, I know them from back in the day. A lot of people never heard of those songs. Uh, so it's kind of like giving them a fresh life also. And that's why they're there. You know, it just seemed like, you know, those songs were, you know, missed by the audience, I, I think. So here's another opportunity for them to pick up on them, along with the new songs, which obviously sound more modern and are, you know, uh, the latest, greatest as far as what I've been doing. Yeah. Have you ever thought about going back and maybe reissuing or, or redoing a lot of that stuff for Murderer's Row and Balance and Skull? Well, there's two balance, uh, excuse me, two skull songs and two murderers row songs on the skeletons in the closet. Those are yeah. part of the uh, retrospective. Um, the balance stuff has been re-released, but who knows? Anything's possible. Yeah. When you first got into music, I mean, I know it was, you were very young, you were a kid. I mean, how far did you think you were going to go with it? I mean, did you say at that time, this is something I think I could do the rest of my life? Because, you know, it's kind of like a one in a million shot of making it in this business. Yeah, of course. No, I had, I had um, no thoughts of what was going to happen, just of the present of just this is what I want to do and this is what I'm good at, so let's do that. That was it. Never had any plan or preconceived notions, no. Yeah. You know, Bob, you've done so much session work over the years, a lot of studio work. I mean, that's sort of like the unsung hero of the business because you don't get the credit or the face time that you do when you're out there in front of people. Uh, but yet, you know, everything you've recorded and done, people could quote or tell you ad nauseum how you've done it. Well, I, I guess, you know, it's just the way the cookie crumbled as far as, you know, uh, wasn't in a one band that people would know me for. 
you know, played with a whole bunch of different people. And same with the record situation, even though people know I work with Motorhead and stuff like that. It's still not one thing that somebody could say, uh, oh, he was, you know, the singer in REO Speedwagon, or he was the, you know, the guitar player in Incubus or something like that. You know, it's just, you know, my, uh, you know, my uh, musical uh, backgrounds at this point of what I've done is, you know, both recording uh, recording career and a live career. So, you know, I really have no regrets. Um, one has to accept one's circumstance, and so I accept that I'm very lucky. I got to work with these great people and continue to do so. And, you know, now I finally have a solo record out. So it's pretty cool. Absolutely. And the amount of people, like I said, you've worked with over the years, you haven't limited yourself to just the rock genre. You've been all over the map, worked with a lot of people. Is it important to, you know, stretch your horizons and your boundaries and open up to all different types of music to really say, you know, you're a musician and that, you know, good music is good music no matter where it comes from? I thought so. That's why I made a point of saying to myself, if you're going to be able to play, you should be able to play with anybody. So that included, you know, uh, being able to play all styles. And so when uh, the opportunity arose to work with, for instance, uh, Patti LaBelle and Diana Ross, you know, I was able to easily, you know, play that kind of stuff while still playing my thing because, you know, I had studied and played all styles uh, to get familiar so that when the opportunity arose, I would be able to do that, including, you know, I can remember one time where, you know, I was at a rehearsal with a band and we were hanging out and there were a bunch of other bands rehearsing there and Tony Williams was the, the famous jazz drummer was rehearsing and uh, he invited me in and asked if I would play guitar and just jam along, which was, you know, Tony Williams was like an idol, you know, and I was like, well, I'm not really great at playing this kind of stuff, but I was able to make it work. So that's what I'm saying, you know, it was just like, even though it was just a jam, you know, the guy looked at me like, well, you're, you're, you play, and it's like, thanks. So, you know, those opportunities didn't pass me by. I was able to, you know, uh, play with these people, uh, get the gig with Diana Ross and Patti LaBelle and play with Lou Reed and people like that were, that were maybe a little bit outside of the what people think of me as a rock metal guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, as well as having the, you know, with the different styles of music, I mean, you're dealing with different personalities. Going into the studio, working alongside Lemmy or Blackie Lawless compared to Patti LaBelle and Dana Ross, do you feel like you have to walk a fine line, like how you deal with each personality? And, and you know, because, you know, there's different levels of life and, and music. Yes, uh, you know, definitely, you know, dealing with um, the people you mentioned was challenging. But uh, they're all people, and so you find the way to, uh, you know, make friends while working. And, you know, the live circumstance obviously was a little different than being in the studio. But, you know, people are people, and music is music. And fortunately for me, I was able to get along with the heaviest of the heavy and, you know, the poppiest of the pop. Yeah. Bob, you remember at one point in your career being in a band thinking this band is going to be it or even being in a band that was already established that had a good track record going and saying I better off is coming up and then you left that for another offer and then that kind of bombed out. You're just like, what did I do? No, I never, never ever did that. You know, um, everything just went in a synchronistic way from gig to gig. One gig just led to the other. And uh, when 
time was up for one gig and I had to take another gig, you know, I, I never looked back. Yeah. Did you ever worry over the years that, you know, it just wasn't happening, it wasn't going to make it, and you figured, I mean, just throw in a towel now and get a nine-to-five? Were there ever those moments that, or did you just, or was there a point where you actually felt comfortable and said, no, this is it, I'm going to do this, I'm making money, I'm making a career out of it? Did you ever hit that point? Um, luckily enough, you know, uh, I, I didn't get to the point where I wanted to give up. I always felt that uh, there was something coming, and, so when it did, you know, I was like, well, see, there you go. So, you know, you have to have faith in what you're doing. And, uh, again, you know, it's it's a matter of luck and timing, but so far so good. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad of that. With the new album and the new music, I mean, is this something you plan on maybe taking out on the road or doing one-off shows? I mean, would you put together like a, a more stable band to go out with? Because, you know, with all these people, I think it would kind of be impossible. Well, um, actually, uh Todd Kearns and Brent Fitz, who are on the record, are going to be playing with me and my brother on the Kiss Cruise. We're going to be doing an hour show. So that's kind of like, uh, that's next month, excuse me, in November. So um, we're going to see how that goes. And meantime, see if um, we get some offers to do some shows, which would be great. Yeah, that would be. You know, but I mean, the Sinatra record uh, came out quite a few years ago now. Any plans to do another trivia album like that based on like a classic artist like Frank Sinatra? Maybe somebody different about Tony Bennett. Anybody else out there that you want to attempt? Uh, well, you know, there's there's lots of stuff that I have notes on that I thought this would be great to redo and that would be great to redo. Like Goldfinger on my record. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. a great song to redo. But, um, until somebody steps forth to want to do that label-wise, I have no plans to do that, no. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, you and Brett Chase have worked together for a long time. I mean, like, you're two of your partners in crime. How did you guys hook up? I met him through uh, one of the other people that I was working with, this guy named Jeremy. And um, they both worked with me at the studio for a brief period. And then uh, Jeremy moved on and Brett stayed. So that was, you know, I had not met him before and uh, a great player and uh, we made some great records. Yeah. Bob, all the bands you work with, last week I had Ron Cook from the band Thrust on the show. You worked with Ron back in the 90s uh, on, on one of the records out in California. Were there any bands like that that you worked with where you just looked at them and said, this band that, that doesn't stand a chance in hell of making it, and then you turn around and the next biggest thing in the world? That hasn't happened, um, other than, I guess, you know, my auditioning for KISS back uh, in the day. And then, you know, but, you know, here we are full circle. Here I am going to be playing on the cruise with them. So, you know, um, things happen in a funny way, I guess. They sure do. Hey, but I'm not going to keep I apologize that we got kind of hooked, you know, all this internet. No worries. No problem. Messed things up and it kind of ran late. I, I know you got another one coming up right after this, but I do appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me. You did an amazing job on this album, man. I, I'm hoping that you keep going and, and writing more new music and put out more new records because I would love to keep hearing stuff like this. Great. Thank you so much. If you do have enough? Plenty. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Perfect. You got it. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you. Take care, buddy. Bye.
Stop the Rock. It's time to wrap it up here tonight. I want to thank him and the rest of our guests, Danny Filth and Rich Ward. Had a great time talking with everyone tonight. Don't forget to tune in next Sunday night for our guest, Eric Wagner from The Skull, Trouble Back in the Old Day and Blackfinger, as well as Brian Blake from Genghis Khan. I think we might have one other guest on next week. I'm going to confirm the interview probably sometime by Wednesday, and I'll let you know. But don't forget to come back next Sunday night at 6 o'clock. Let's wrap it up here tonight with some deal. I've been on a big deal kick the last week, so let's get something on off the first record. Plus, every now and then, it's nice to play a band that other people that aren't into the underground might recognize or know. So here you go, deal, straight through the heart. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Enjoy your Columbus Day, especially if you're off tomorrow here in the USA. And I'll see you next Sunday night. Good night, everyone.
Okay, keep your eyes closed. Okay. I want to show you my first ever painting. All right. Okay. Open your eyes. Oh, that's a lot of colors mm -hmm. <laughs> and shapes. So be honest. What do you think? Well, uh, I like how if you switch to Geico, you could save hundreds of dollars on car insurance. Oh yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Here, why don't I hold your paintbrush while you call them? Geico, because saving fifteen percent or more on car insurance is always a great answer. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing the Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.